Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week, we're reading two miracle stories as told in John 4, 46 to 518. In the first story, Jesus saves the child of a royal official who believes Jesus' words even before he sees evidence of the healing. In the second story, Jesus heals a man who has been sitting by the healing waters of Bethzatha for 38 years with no one to help him into the pool. We wonder how a community could allow someone to suffer for so long and marvel at the healing Jesus offers him. We ponder the motivations of Jesus, who seems reluctant to heal in one case and heals without being asked in the other. And we struggle with how to read miracle stories in our own day, when all too often those who need miracles seem not to receive them. How do we read miracle stories in a miracle-free world? Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? I'm okay. I was riding in the car with my four-year-old the other day, and she said, I want to listen to music. And so I said, what do you want to listen to? And she said, I want to listen to the Sesame Street album where you and Amy sing. Like, I don't know where that came from because, like, she's I never think met we you. We have a new summer series. Yeah. Bobby and Amy sing Sesame Street songs. We would do a very good job of that. We would. That you think I look so like a Muppet happy. anyway? Yeah. That would make me very happy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good. I think she only knows you from listening to Bible Worm upon occasion, but I'm I not I, sure I have ever laid eyes on your daughter in person. I don't think you, I don't think you have. No. That's crazy town. But you clearly live large in her imagination. That's good. <laughs> Perhaps as a giant yellow bird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Amy, we are continuing on this week in the Gospel of John. We actually have, the narrative lectionary gives us two stories. One is the main story, I guess, and the other then in the narrative lectionary is in brackets, which mm-hmm. often means like, here's a little extra to this story that you could read. This week, it means like, Here's a whole different story. story. (laughs) Yeah. So what we're going to do today is we're going to do each of these stories. The first one being the continuation of John chapter four, verses 46 to 54, Mm -hmm. uh, the healing of an official's uh, son. And then we're going to continue on after that in five, one to 18, which is the story of the miraculous healing of, uh, of a man who can't walk. And so that's what we're going to do. Does that sound good to you? Let's do it. Double healing. Double healings. Double your pleasure, double your fun, double your healings. (laughs) We have heard tell in the Gospel of John that Jesus is doing signs and miracles, but we haven't actually seen any narrated other than the wedding at Cana back in Right, where people didn't know that, necessarily know it was him that did it. Yeah. Yeah. Here we have miracles that are, I mean, miraculous signs, to use John's language which are related to the healing of people. And one thing that I have appreciated reading with you, a lot in the New Testament, but also we've seen a couple of times in the Hebrew scriptures, you are always a little uncomfortable 
with miracle stories in ways that I think are actually pretty helpful. And so I was, I was wondering if we could just start by naming that discomfort as we, as we think about how to approach miraculous healings. Would you be willing to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Okay. So I haven't thought about it quite in the abstract as you're, as you're mm. bringing it up now. It's always been in response to a particular story. But I think that my discomfort comes from, from two possible places. Mm-hmm. One of them is, you know, like sometimes I work with my, with my bar and bat mitzvah students in there, and they see such a difference, like what God used to do. Yeah. And then what the world we live in now. Yeah. And it is very clear to them in their 12-year-old lives that the kinds of stuff God used to do just doesn't happen anymore. And so it yeah. makes it makes it feel like God is not in the world anymore because people do just get sick and just suffer and just, yeah. you know, not be able to do things in their bodies that they wish to be able to do. And so I think it I don't know what to do. I want I want the scripture to to deal with that. Yes. Not to say, well, maybe it's not true, because it often is true. Right. So I guess I just don't find it, like, this seems so selfish. I don't find it, like, theologically useful to say, like, well, God could heal and, and did it once. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. Like, right, but now what, I don't know what to do with that now. Yeah. The other thing that has come up sometimes, but not all the time, it depends on the story, is sometimes I see in the text an assumption, I wouldn't say it's true in these stories we're reading today, but that there was this story we read a couple years ago where someone, it says there was a man in the synagogue and there was, there was something with his hand. His hand wasn't functioning yeah. the way that hands usually function. Mm-hmm. And he was miraculously healed. But there was nothing in the text that indicated that he was suffering or even seeking healing. Yeah. If I recall correctly, there was just an assumption that there's a way that the human body is ideally and yeah. yours is not like that. And it would be ideal if it were. Right. And I just, I don't know how that feels to people who have, I don't, I don't know, we inhabit the world in lots of different bodies. And so, absolutely, we sometimes wish our bodies could do things that they can't do. Mm-hmm. But I don't like going in with the assumption. I love that, Amy. I appreciate that so much. And to me, those are the two, the, the two concerns. Is there's an inherent ableism and the miracle That's stories. the word, mm-hmm. ableism. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying, one of the people in the Bible Worm Collaborative raised this issue with this first story that we're going to read about a son who is near death and then is miraculously healed and saying that this has been a, a source of concern in her congregation for people who actually have lost children along Absolutely. the way to say, why did this person get yeah. this healing and my child didn't? And it, it raises that whole issue that you were talking about, about what God being active or not active, or was my faith not strong enough or mm-hmm. what's going on? Mm-hmm. I don't really know. Like, I, I don't think you and I are going to solve those two conundra mm-hmm. on this Bible worm, <laughs> like this worm related <laughs> podcast. <laughs> It's probably not going to get us there. Probably not today. But no. I think it's important for us to name it and to carry that with us in the interpretation. And for those of us who are interpreting these texts for ourselves or for other people to keep that out there. Like what, when we say whatever we're going to say about these texts, like we need to keep that in mind. Yeah. So that being said, uh, Jesus performs two miraculous signs here in today's text. The first one 
uh, begins in chapter 4, verse 46. Jesus returned to Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. In Capernaum, there was a certain royal official whose son was sick. When he heard that Jesus was coming from Judea to Galilee, he went out to meet him and asked Jesus if he would come and heal his son, for his son was about to die. Jesus said to him, Unless you see miraculous signs and wonders, you won't believe. The royal official said to him, Lord, come before my son dies. Jesus replied, Go home, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and set out for his home. The first thing in the story is, a, is the setting, and it is very clear. We're back in Cana, and John tells us, don't forget, this is where we right. saw that other miracle. What do you make of the fact that it so clearly starts us off back in that setting? I mean, my simple-minded answer is that John wants us to read the story with the story of the wedding at Cana in mind. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe we can tease that out a little bit as we go and see, and see if we draw some similarities. But it's not merely that, oh, we're back in Cana. Like, he takes the time to say, don't forget. This is where he turned water into wine. It's the second sign he's done in the same place. In some ways, I think these stories have some commonalities that are that are pretty interesting. Um, But but maybe we can pull those out sort of as we go. Yeah. Yeah. The person who comes to Jesus is said in this version of the story to be a royal official who is in Capernaum, who has a son who is sick. We read a version of this story last year where it was a Roman centurion whose slave was sick. And sometimes Mm. you can read these two stories and sort of mix up their details. But John's story is not about that. It's about a royal official who has a sick son. Any thoughts about that? I mean, I don't know if you want to think about the connection to the other story. Like, I don't know that it's that important. I had not thought of the connection to the other story. Yeah. Any thoughts about it being a royal official and it being that official's son who is who is of concern? I mean, so on the one hand, royal official, okay, so this is a, a person who has significant power yeah. in society who probably is accustomed to being able to uh, get what they need, you know, to be able to yeah. articulate their needs and desires and have some expectation that these things are going to happen. But at the same time, like one of maybe few things that would be outside the realm of human power <laughs> would would be something like this. You know, you can have you can have all the money and power in the world, and there is a point at which sickness is sickness and death is death. And yeah. to think of one's child being near death is like the ultimate in powerlessness. Yeah. So he sits at this weird place of like, I don't know, being accustomed to to having power and radically not having power. Yeah. I love that, Amy, that sort of his official role is very powerful and he is not like most of us in that way. Mm. And yet his concern for his son is very personal. And many of us, most of us can relate in some way or another to that idea of someone that we love and the powerlessness that, that we feel there. I love that. It is not clear in this telling, as, as it is clearer in the synoptics, that this guy is a Gentile or whether he is Jewish. He's mm-hmm. a royal official. We're in Galilee. So presumably what that means is that he is in the court of Herod Antipas, who's the Tetrarch of Galilee. Maybe he's Gentile. I mean, we're in Capernaum. We're close to the border. 
but there's nothing in this text that suggests one way or another, at least as far yeah. as I can see. Yeah. Do you have thoughts no, about that? That question had not even occurred to me, which yeah. I think just, again, underscores that the text doesn't, does really doesn't tell us. Although that question then makes me wonder, and we can just put a pin in this question and come yeah. back to it, but in a couple verses, in verse 48, when Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe, yeah. it's a plural you. It is. So who does this, who is, who is yeah. y'all yeah. in this? So, so your question made me think of that question. Yeah, I mean, let's just go there, because to me, that's such an interesting point. The, on this issue of, is he Jewish or Gentile? Yeah. In my mind, the answer is, John doesn't care, <laughs> right? So I love that answer. W- we should not have an interpretation that relies on the ethnicity of this guy, because yeah. John isn't bothering to tell us. Yeah. Maybe in the Luke version of this story, it does matter. It is a Roman centurion, right? But here, I, I think if we get if we get too focused on ethnicity yeah. or on religious background, maybe we're missing the point. Mm-hmm. This thing that you raise, so the official comes to Jesus and says, my son is about to die. And I mean, we don't get his direct dialogue, but he asked Jesus if he would come and heal his son. Mm-hmm. And then you're noticing that Jesus says, to put it in Arkansas English, Unless y'all see miraculous signs and wonders, y'all won't believe. Yeah. First, I just want to say, first of all, that when Jesus says that to the man and you don't read it as a plural, to me, it sounds really judgy. You won't believe unless you see. Mm-hmm. Sounds really different in my, mm-hmm. at least in my ear for some reason, than y'all won't believe unless y'all see. Yeah. No, I wondered like, I have so many thoughts about this exchange, but I wondered with that line, like, is it almost like, I almost see it as like Jesus almost like talking to himself, like yeah. thinking through like, what do I do? What needs to happen yeah. here? And realizing, like in some ways, I, I feel like the the man and Jesus have really different goals <laughs> Yeah, here, you know? The man, and we talked about him being powerful and being vulnerable, but my translation says he's begging. He's not just asking, he's begging. Yeah. And I think maybe that translation or maybe just the plot line in general, it pressed me to, I mean, I hate to even try to step into real empathy with this man because it's, it is too terrifying and too excruciating to actually try to imagine yourself in that situation. And so I hope people listening can't do it. I hope your brain just won't mm-hmm. do it. I hope you've never had to really fear for your child's life. But he is terrified and completely powerless and begging. Yeah. But then it seems like Jesus' response is more, Jesus is is thinking about another question. Like Jesus' mission on earth is to get people to believe. And it is urgent. Yeah. But it's a really different, urgent issue. No, I think that's right. And I've got my head, you've got my head going in so many different directions at the same time. One of them is if we read this text through the lens of the wedding at Cana, Mm -hmm. we get kind of a similar vibe, right? Mm -hmm. Jesus's mother had an urgency. Oh my goodness, this wedding has run out of wine. And Jesus is like, what, what is that concern to me? Yeah. Yeah. Here we get an official saying, my son is about to die. And Jesus is responding about people's belief or or unbelief. It's almost like 
there's a little bit of a disconnect between yeah. Jesus's responsiveness to people and their own people's own sense of urgency. Yeah. But in both cases, Jesus then does respond. Mm-hmm. To me, that's interesting. Yes. I think it's really interesting. Do you know what to do with that? And, you know, in some ways, it alleviates some of my discomfort with healing stories. Hmm. Because, and, and on another hand, it can feel a little bit sort of, I don't know, cold and not so empathetic. But it's almost more like Jesus has a mission. Yeah. And this man has a mission. Yeah. Their missions are different. Yeah. But there's a way that they can like come together, like that one outcome can sort of serve both of their needs. It's like a treaty. Yeah. (laughs) But it's not that Jesus feels overwhelming empathy for this man and is moved to heal his son. Yeah. It's that Jesus recognizes this is a moment where I have your full and complete attention, you person in power who might not ordinarily need to reach out. And so it's like I have an opportunity. Mm-hmm. I don't know. The word opportunity makes it sound a little gross and a little like opportunistic to me. But yeah, how's all that sitting with you? The way that I was reading it, which I think is similar, is there's a sense in which Jesus does not feel urgency about the things that people feel urgency about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which can feel a little cold, but if you try to read it sort of more theologically than that, mm-hmm. I think maybe what Jesus is saying is, in the big scheme of what God is working out in the world, this thing that seems urgent in this moment, mm-hmm. I recognize that it's urgent to you, but really there are more there are more important things or more... Mm-hmm. Like in the fullness of the kingdom, mm-hmm. maybe this doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> Which now that I say it that way, that sounds cool too because we're we're talking about this guy's No, but I think there son. really is, I mean, I'm not sure the right words to put around it, but I think you're right that it's just they're they're they have different <laughs> it is really different things that feel urgent to them. Yeah. And what I was going uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was just going to say, even when the man responds to what Jesus says, so Jesus says, like, unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. Yeah. And then I sort of picture the man like, mm-hmm, will you come? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I have no response to what you just said. I am laser focused on yeah. my child and you are laser focused on getting us to believe. Like, it, it's, they're like having two separate conversations almost. And yet they end up both doing yes. what the other one is hoping. That is right. That will yep. happen. Yep. And so we do get yep. a, we do get a son who lives and we do get a man who believes by the by yep. the end of this story. Yep. One of the the word that Jesus uses, go home your son lives. Mm-hmm. Jesus could have said, go home your son has been made well or your son has been healed. That word lives, I think in John's gospel has big connotations. Like it means not only like he's still alive, but he has a fullness of life. And also the fullness of that life extends into a future in this, uh, this arrival of the kingdom of heaven. So there is both a, a nowness 
and a fullness of the now, and then also an extended life. Yeah. And I kind of wonder if Jesus's lack of urgency or seemingly so about this boy's death is that he's now seeing life as like continuous, you know, like you live here and now you live in the future with God. Like it's all the same. Mm -hmm. Death's not really a thing anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a thing, but it's not, it doesn't have any ultimate significance. Right. That might be spinning a, a little bit of a theological like dig out of John that may not quite be there, but, but I, but I think it's not unreasonable. You know, the NRSV translation instead of lives has will live, mm. which I, I know I can see how they would, they're both just like, you know, imperfective, I guess, forms. Yeah. But it doesn't have, I see how your translation holds that it cues that resonance more easily yeah. for me in the English than than will live. Will live does sound like it's a solution to the problem that you said he's dying. Yeah. That verb is present active. Yeah. So it really is. It really is live. lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the NRSV has made a little bit of an interpretive move. Yeah. That is not actually there in the Greek. Yeah. No, I like your interpretive move. On this issue of y'all, which we which we've yeah. talked around a little bit, I read y'all as y'all human beings. Yeah. And we saw that back at the end of chapter two, where people believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them <laughs> because he knows like mm. people who are persuaded by yeah. signs, yeah. Jesus doesn't trust because he w- wants something deeper than that, I think. And yeah. So I read this that line almost as Jesus is just like trying to figure out like how do I deal with people being the way people are? Yeah. And it's not it's not exactly about this man, although it is about this man, but it's about this man as part of humankind. Yeah. Y'all need signs. But I don't think signs are actually all that important. But because you need signs, mm-hmm. then okay, here here we go. Yeah. Does that seem reasonable? Absolutely. I mean, that's really that is that's how I Read it too, that that Jesus is sort of like, well, I have to work with what I got here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and this is how you get the attention and the and the faith of humans. But in an ideal world, you wouldn't have to do that. Yeah. Maybe. And and there's nothing, yeah, there's nothing about the the wonders or signs themselves that is like of inherent importance to yeah. Jesus or to Jesus's mission. Yeah. Like it's, they're incidental. They're a strategy. Yeah. A means to an end. They're not yeah. the point. So to us, it seems like that's the most important thing. Right. To Jesus, it seems like, okay, here's a way I can get you to pay attention to what's actually really important. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly, at the end of verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. So Jesus has said, your son lives, but the man doesn't have any evidence that that is true. He hasn't seen a sign. He hasn't seen a miracle. He's just heard Jesus say this thing. And yet we get that line, the man believed. The man believed the word. I just find that such an interesting, like given what we were just saying, here we have a man who believes. And I think it's so interesting that, you know, the man asks Jesus to come down and heal 
the sun. Like, assuming, I suppose reasonably, I mean, I don't know what the rules of miraculous healing are, but that you would have to be in proximity to the person who is dying. And Jesus doesn't go. Yeah. So I... I w- it almost feels like a I'll meet you halfway kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and he's willing to believe. And then, you know, of course, he will we'll read on and, and hear how the details of it play out. But, yeah, it's, it's interesting that he asks for him to go. Jesus doesn't go, but the man accepts Jesus' word that it has yeah. happened. Yeah, and you use the phrase he's willing to believe, which could suggest he's sort of like the jury is still out, you know, like, I'll give this a shot. But the language of the text is actually the man believed. And and so it seems that Jesus's word has been sufficient to him. To me, it reads like his belief is fully belief, even though he hasn't actually witnessed a miracle. You're right. You are right. Which then makes me start thinking, like, I want to go back and and start thinking about, like, what did this man, what did he already heard about Jesus? What did he already know? Like, why would you believe someone if they just said, "Yeah, okay, it's done? Yeah. But he does. He does. Okay, I think there's more that one could say about that. There's always more that one could say, but why don't we read the rest of the story, and then we'll come come back to it. Yeah. Picking up in verse 51. While he was on his way, his servants were already coming to meet him. They said, your son lives. So he asked them at what time his son had started to get better. And they said, the fever left him yesterday at about one o'clock in the afternoon. Then the father realized that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son lives. And he and his entire household believed in Jesus. This was the second miraculous sign Jesus did while going from Judea to Galilee. I mean, it's just so interesting because we just ended on this point of like, he believed. Yeah. And then his servants say, confirm it. Yeah. You know? What do you think about the fact that he then digs in further and is like, what was that? Like, he's looking for more pointed confirmation. Yeah. So he has believed the word that Jesus spoke and he has not witnessed the miracle. Mm Mm-hmm. But he wants comf- he's con- he want he wants to be able to connect the two causally. Yeah, like really, really clearly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the servants have witnessed the miracle, but they haven't connected. Like as far as they know, it's just that he started getting better, I guess. And then so that yeah, right. Now we they get don't the connection. Mm-hmm. Each everybody had half the story. Yeah, and now everybody has the whole story, and so there's this like everybody in in this household now believes. Right. Now you can be super doubly sure that yeah. this was because of Jesus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When we talk about these stories, I, I keep hearing this echo that we're going to, of, of a later text. So I don't, that's not exactly an echo. It's like a preco. <laughs> I don't know what you call that. Uh, an anticipation yeah. of uh, at the very end of this gospel, the disciple Thomas is going to not be present when Jesus appears to the disciples and he's going to doubt. And Jesus says to him, blessed are you who have seen and believe, but more blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And like in my mind, this is sort of headed us in that direction, mm. right? Jesus Jesus would prefer that we would be able to believe without the sign. Mm-hmm. But Jesus kind of knows that's not the, not the way it is. And so there's the sign and then there's the miracle. It's sort of like a step on the way. Instead mm-hmm. of the miracle and then I believe, it's I believe, then there's a miracle and that confirms 
Yeah. I okay. Yes, and I want to suggest an alternative. Yeah. Way of understanding that, which I think is less like less theologically lovely than yours, but I mean, I'm just thinking about degrees of belief and sort of like the stickiness of belief. Yeah. Like how how long you and I have talked before about how like often for us living a life of faith is not like you realize you have this sudden epiphany and you realize whatever you realize about God, and then you never question it again, and you're, like, good to go. Yeah. So even if he did believe, that doesn't mean that it wouldn't be helpful to have a little more heft. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know? No, I love that. And we've been talking about that in different ways throughout this whole season, now that you say it. And, you know, the one that comes back to my mind is the story of the manna when that's mm-hmm. the glory of the Lord, even though they've just come across the Red mm-hmm. Sea mm-hmm. in this dramatic show. And mm-hmm. we, we get that reiteration of, so that you may know that I am the Lord. Yeah. And yeah. so we've seen that kind of consistently in, throughout this whole lectionary cycle, that belief requires confirmation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And here it's sort of the mutual confirmation of community. So when community gets together and they share what they know, I had a conversation with Jesus, your son, lives and they connect those things, then they all, like now there's like a sense of communal belief, whereas previously it was just that the man had believed. Yes. And that is one of my favorite things, hands down, about about a lot of the gospels that we've read together is that piece of it, that everyone has some little piece of the puzzle, but they have to talk about it or they're not going to understand how it fits into everything else. This is one of the things that connects in my mind back to thinking about the wedding at Cana is there too, we had a sign you had to talk to people in order to put together the pieces of the sign, right? Yeah. You, there was no dramatic moment in that miracle. The water, Jesus said, pour some water out. And then it, when somebody tasted, it was wine. And only the people who saw both of those things understood right. what had happened. Right. This is kind of the same way. Like yep. there's no miraculous moment where Jesus sort of, I don't know, does whatever he does and the sun hops up. It's, this is, I'm just going to say a thing. Some people mm-hmm. are going to see that he's better. Nobody's got the full picture. Right. But when they talk to each other, now they get it. This right, you're going to have to put it together. And then it just says the man in his household believed yeah. in Jesus. Like, you think he'd get a little more bang for his buck. He just <laughs> healed somebody. Yeah. But. Uh, That's interesting, Amy, because that was also the case at the wedding, right? Where it was like this yeah. little group of people in this big group of people. Now they believe. Whereas if Jesus had been like, Zappo Magico, like, <laughs> all, everybody get a glass of water and kaboomy, now it's wine. Like Totally. But that's not the way it works. It's like this no. little. These little yeah. quiet things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That gets me back to thinking about like what it, Jesus is, I mean, the way he performs signs here is just so interesting and it's repeated. So we get these small miracles that people have to put together the pieces. We get this sort of urging that Jesus is like, no, I'm not really into that. Then he does it anyway. Mm-hmm. He, both miracles sort of happen when Jesus is not exactly physically there. Like the mm-hmm. one happens in the tasting, which is done somewhere else. This one happens at the servant's home. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts about like if you put all that together, like is there a is there a claim that's being made there, or you know what I mean? Like, is that trying to point us to thinking about something or other, or is it just an interesting detail? What do you do with that? The fact that he's like not quite there is that all like- of that? Just like he's Jesus is sort of like I'm doing the things, but I don't actually. I'm going to say I'm not going to do them, but then I'm going to do them and I'm not going to be there and you're going to have to put it together. Like, it's just a very curious way of telling these stories. It is. 
<laughs> it is. And it's happened I'm, twice now, and they were intentionally connected with each other by the gospel right. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the best I can do with that in this moment is, again, sort of, you know, John saying, like, yes, the, uh, sort of going back to Jesus's line, like, y'all need this stuff. Yeah. I see that you need this. This is really not my mo. <laughs> yeah, like this is not my cup of tea. Um, and so I, you know, in some ways, it seems like Jesus is not really putting his whole heart into doing <laughs> these things, and is <laughs> yeah. certainly not being showy about them. Yeah, but but is I guess recognizing the way he's got to talk to people, the way they can hear it. Yeah. I feel like there should be more in it than that, though. I, I like that a lot. The other place, I go a couple other additional places. One is the fact that Jesus is not re- exactly responsive. Like, Jesus is clear that he's doing these things because Jesus has decided to do them. Mm-hmm. Not because he is easily swayed by mm-hmm. people telling him to do things. Mm-hmm. Although, ultimately, he is swayed by people telling him to do things or asking him to do things. But he's not like... Okay, you asked me, so I'm going to do it. He's like, oh, eh. <laughs> and then, mm-hmm. and then he's like, oh, okay, I'll do it. To me, that suggests like Jesus is in control of what he does, and he's mm-hmm. sort of open to input, <laughs> but he's acting out of his own desire mm-hmm. for healing and wholeness and community or, or whatever. And in my mind, that says something important about Jesus. And Jesus is a reflection of God. It says something important about God, who acts of God's own volition. Jesus acts of God's, of of Jesus' own volition. Mm -hmm. The fact that it's at a distance to me is useful in that it suggests that Jesus does not have to be physically present in order for the wonders that Jesus offers to be effective, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is good news in the story, but it's really good news when Jesus is crucified and returns to, is resurrected and returns to heaven and is distant. That doesn't mean that things, miraculous things stop happening. Mm -hmm. Jesus doesn't have to be there. And then to me, the third thing that's happening there is that, I mean, both of these miracles, it's not been clear that a miracle has happened. And so that people are putting together the pieces of the miracle, which in some ways, I think responds to where you started us out talking about the problems of miracles, which is to say like, signs are great, but life itself is kind of a miracle. And if we talk to each other about the wonders of the life that we have, like we begin to see the sustaining, nurturing, like miracles of life that that God offers, but it doesn't seem flashy and it doesn't seem dramatic. Mm -hmm. But you know what I mean? Like this thing that seems like he just got better. Yeah. From one perspective only becomes a miracle when you talk to the other, the other folks. I mean, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. God, you have me thinking so many different thoughts that I like. I can't even finish a thought before I start thinking another thought. But two things that popped into my head as you were talking, see if I can remember the second one by the time I get there, is, you know, one, just you were saying like he's, Jesus is not beholden to what other people, to what humans ask of him yeah. or what humans feel are need to be the priority. And I think, you know, reading this as a human, 
I think part of that is like precisely the fact that this healing does not come out of a sense of deep connection and compassion and empathy for the suffering of this father and this yeah. son, yeah. which feels really weird. Yeah. Like, because we want our religious communities to embody empathy and compassion and all that. And certainly the church would, I imagine, would would teach that that is an important part of our you know, ministry in the world. But that's not what this story, that's not what happens here, I don't think. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And I forgot that I forgot the second thing, as as I knew I would. So okay. <laughs> okay, Amy, I think I think what we might do at this point is move on to the next story because I think it picks up in an interesting kind of way on what you were just saying. Mm-hmm. Because the this miracle sort of begins quite differently. Yeah than that last one. Great. So why don't we read this story and then we'll come back and, and see what we can pull together at the end. Okay. Hey everyone, it's Bobby here from the Bible Worm Podcast. And do we have an exciting deal for you. This month, you can receive all the benefits of being a Bible Worm subscriber for the introductory price of just $4. Throughout the month of February, subscribers at any level will receive early access to episodes, as well as weekly liturgies and video lectures to accompany each podcast episode for the entire month. Plus, you'll get a terrific Bible Worm sticker that will make you the envy of your friends and family. There's no obligation, and you can cancel at any time. If you want to take advantage of this special offer, visit us at patreon.com slash Podcast and sign up at the Bible Worm supporter level for just $4 for the month. If you've always wondered what it's like to be a Bible Worm subscriber, hope you'll join us in this special offer. And now, back to this week's episode. So I am in chapter 5, verses 1 through most of 9. After this, there was a Jewish festival, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate in the North City Wall, is a pool with the Aramaic name Bethsaida. It had five covered porches, And a crowd of people who were sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed sat there. A certain man was there who had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, knowing that he had already been there for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I don't have anyone who can put me in the water when it is stirred up. When I'm trying to get to it, someone else has gotten in ahead of me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Immediately the man was well. And he picked up his mat and walked. Okay, first, since we started the last story talking about setting, I just want to note that we're back in Jerusalem. Yeah, with another festival, an unnamed festival. Those Jews and their festivals. (laughs) So many festivals. They're always festivaling. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So if we think of this framework as moving back and forth between Galilee, where Jesus is sort of accepted, and Jerusalem, the center of authoritative, mm. like religious authority, where Jesus is not well accepted, mm-hmm. that might help us frame a little bit, sort of sets our expectations a little bit. Oh, we're in Jerusalem, center of power, center of religious authority. This is this is going to be trouble. So the story opens with a man who's been sick for 38 years lying next to this pool that has healing properties. Yeah. First of all, before we before we introduce Jesus into this picture, any thoughts about just this man and his situation? My okay, so my related question <laughs> is just it's such a striking image. There's some kind mm. of pool that has healing properties. It has yeah. five porticos. 
And there are all these people laying there. Yeah. Is there like any modern image that this stirs up for you? Like where would this place be? Like they're they're there because they need something that is most likely to be available there as far as they knew, as far as they know. But, you know, you can't reliably get it or it's, you know, I don't know. Is there a place like this in the world? Yeah, I mean, that's such an interesting observation, Amy. And especially when you add in what he says in verse seven. Oh, yes. I don't have anybody to put me in the water. Like, it's right yeah. there. I'm right next to it. I don't yeah. have a, anybody to help me. And so I've been here for 38 years. Like, this is yeah. basically his whole life. And so, yeah, so that image of there is wellness, there is life on offer, mm-hmm. but it is conceived of as limited and one needs to have access to it and people don't help each other get there. So in some sense, the people who need it the most are the least able to actually make their way in. Right. Right. And there are other people who may need it, but, but, but are stronger in some way that gives them the capacity to access it. And so the people as you, exactly as you said, the people who most need it don't actually have what they need to access it. And so they just, are stuck there. Yeah. So when you say, is there a place like this? Like my first response is like, that's the way that the world is. <laughs> yeah. And <I'm laughs> right? <like>, America. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, in my own context with Mercy Church and other work that I do, like to me, th- these are the kinds of the people that I spend a lot of time around are, are people desperately in need of helping. They don't have the resources they need yes. to get where they want to, or where they need to go. And it's, viewed as sort of a limited resource that not everybody gets to have access to this healing fullness of life or or however you want to think about it. And you got to know somebody in order to get what you need. This is all seems very, very familiar to me in a a really troubling way. Mm -hmm. Jesus then comes into this situation with the question, do you want to get well? This is a very different than the way Jesus has gotten engaged in these previous miracle stories. Yeah. Do you have thoughts about, I mean, we don't know what motivates Jesus. We don't really know exactly what he means by this question. But how do you read Jesus's approach to this man? It's so interesting because I love that you started us out thinking about like, where is the center of power and where are we relative to that? And it's yeah. so interesting that as we move into the center of religious power, we look at a healing of someone who is way outside the power. Whereas yeah. like the last story, we were in Galilee, but it was a pretty yeah. powerful guy who was That's asking right. for something. Yeah. And no one asked Jesus for anything here. Jesus just sees sees the need and asks and asks him. I don't yeah. know if he doesn't know. I mean, presumably, I don't know if I should presume this. He doesn't, well, no, we learn later. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't know to ask. He doesn't know that this is, you know, it's almost like in the same way that he doesn't, he's right by this healing pool, but can't get to it because he doesn't have the, the resources, the physical resources that he needs to be able to do it. Here, he's right by this healer, person who can heal and and doesn't know that he can ask for it. Yeah, I, 
that's such a good insight. And, you know, to think about this guy who's been, I mean, it seems like he's been there every day for 38 years, just hoping. Mm-hmm. And it seems like no one has ever asked him this before or like offered to help him in before. Otherwise somebody would, would have helped him in. Yeah. And so over time you just, I imagine kind of get beaten down so that, I mean, you could almost read Jesus's question here if you were in that mindset as an accusation, right? Yeah. Like, don't you want to get well? Like, what right. are you do doing? Do you even want to? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's what Jesus means, mm-hmm. but I I can see how you, like the people I work with at Mercy Church would hear it that way, right? An accusation, mm-hmm. like, why don't you do something better for yourself? Like, what is your problem? And what mm-hmm. they're saying is, we just don't have the resources yeah. to get where we need to go. But when you, but they, people generally approach them with an accusation of why aren't you doing better? Right. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think this man thinks what Jesus is offering to do is to put him in the pool. Yeah. And so his response is, I don't have anybody to help me get in the pool. Yeah. Which is not exactly like, yes, it's, it's sort of an explanation for why he hasn't gotten well. Yeah. More than it is an answer to Jesus's question. Do you want to get well? Right, right. It almost is understanding Jesus's question as sort of like, "What are you doing here?" Yeah, not necessarily in an accusatory way, but like, "What you doing?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, Jesus did, does not have in mind that he's going to help the guy get in the pool. He mm-hmm. just says, "Get up, pick up your mat, and walk." And immediately, the man gets up, picks up his mat, and walks. So the healing on offer was quite different than the sort of official view on healing that that Mm -hmm. pool represents. Mm -hmm. What do you make of that interaction? I mean, I think part of the uh, surprise to me in the story is that he doesn't say, the man doesn't say anything after Jesus says, stand up, take your mat and walk, which seems like that's a pretty tough thing to say to someone who— who just said, I've been laying here, but no one will take me to the healing pool and people basically shove in front of me. (laughs) Yeah. For someone to say, stand up, but, but he doesn't question it. He, he He just just does it and it works. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I mean, I guess there is in that some willingness to believe that it's possible, which is pretty amazing after 38 years and, not having any idea who this guy is. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. You've got me thinking back to the wedding at Cana again, where Mary, Mary, Jesus's mother, who is unnamed in the gospel of John, Mm. but is elsewhere called Mary, (laughs) says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Mm -hmm. And there there seems to be this kind of like, the, the key in these stories is do what Jesus tells you. He tells you to draw water and take it to the steward. You draw water and take it to the steward. He tells you, it's fine, go home. You go home and it's fine. He tells you, get up and take your mat. You get up and take your mat. Mm-hmm. So there's a sense in which I think one of the connections of these signs is responding to Jesus's words, mm-hmm. whatever they are, is what is necessary mm-hmm. in order to, to receive the, what Jesus ha- has on offer. Mm-hmm. But it does require faith on, on the part of the man that, that this is true. In all of those cases, it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think that's I think that's right. Respond to the words, even if they seem crazy. Yeah. 
Yeah, and in this case, they completely seem crazy. They seem totally yeah. crazy. I'm also so interested in, like, we just got through having a whole conversation about how Jesus never gets engaged with anybody. Uh, right. And that's, here, it's mm-hmm. still the point that Jesus does this because Jesus wants to do it. So that sort of Jesus acts on his own volition, I think, carries through these stories. But here, it's very different. Like, yes. there has been nothing asked of Jesus. He, he does a sign. He's been a little reluctant about doing signs, but he, here he does it again. Any th- idea what makes this interaction different for Jesus than those other ones? Maybe you were getting at it before when you were talking about power structures. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I wasn't, I wasn't knowingly getting at it, but I think it's a really, I think it's a really important question. Like why, why does, why does Jesus do this one? Yeah. And, you know, thinking about how the story is going to unfold in a moment, you know, we, we find out that this man doesn't know who Jesus is. So he, he doesn't immediately have any faith because he doesn't know. I mean, maybe it's faith that things can happen, but it's not belief in Jesus. So if that was the goal, that's right. It doesn't ever say that that happened. What happens is that Jesus draws negative attention to himself. Yeah. A lot of negative attention to himself. Yeah. You're talking about, you use the word belief and you're talking about like the rest of the story, which I, which I think is right. But in a sense, I mean, one of the things that John may be playing around with a little bit is like, what do we mean when we say belief? And yeah. We tend to use it in some sense of like, you cognitively acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah or the son of God or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How, however you want to finish that sentence. But there is a way of understanding belief. And in Greek, the verb pistuo related to faith really means something more like trust. And this guy trusts Jesus, even if he doesn't understand who Jesus is. So when Jesus says, get up and mm-hmm. take your mat, mm-hmm. he trusts him enough to get up and take his mat. That's right. So one way of kind of play, teasing, out, teasing that out is it doesn't really matter what's in your head exactly about who Jesus is or isn't. What matters is that you trust Jesus enough to be responsive to the word that he speaks. And that is belief, even if you think Jesus is just that, I love that. That's so interesting. That it's not about having some kind of new worldview and like a, a you know, a, a creed that you yeah. can utter. It's really sort of in, in that moment responding to this man in front of you. Can you do it? Yeah. That's really interesting. The second part of the story introduces this whole complication that yes. you don't really see coming up until this point. And now, and that, yeah. <laughs> I love this line. No, that day was a Sabbath. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, man. Like, <laughs> shoot. Yeah. <And> I, <laughs> yeah. Because in the synoptic gospels, you would get like, it was the Sabbath and Jesus was in the synagogue. Right. And then this thing happens. Here you yeah. get, this thing happens. Oh, yeah. And then by the way. Right. In 9b. Now, that day was the Sabbath. The Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. You aren't allowed to carry your mat. He answered, The man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. They inquired, who is this man who said to you, pick it up and walk? The man who had been cured didn't know who it was because Jesus had slipped away from the crowd gathered there. Later, Jesus found him in the temple and said, see, you have been made well. Don't sin anymore in case something worse happens to you. The man went and proclaimed to the Jewish leaders that Jesus was the man who had made him well. As a result, the Jewish leaders were harassing Jesus since he had done these things on the Sabbath. Jesus replied, My father is still working, and I am working too. 
For this reason, the Jewish leaders wanted even more to kill him, not only because he was doing away with the Sabbath, but also because he called God his own father, thereby making himself equal with God. That was a lot. Can you help us find our way into... What is even happening here? What's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I find it personally like a little entertaining that the the immediate issue is not that he's been healed, that yeah. the leaders of the community don't even know he's been healed. Yeah. They, you know, which I don't know if it's intended as a sort of jab towards them, that they don't even recognize him as someone who's been laying in the yeah the gates all this time. The issue that he's is that he's carrying his mat. Yeah. Now, I mean, there is there is a rabbinic law that we don't have evidence of at this time, but may, you know, a little bit later, that you don't carry things from a private space into a public space on the Sabbath. And that's what they're referring to here: is that yeah. you shouldn't be you shouldn't be carrying something in a that you presumably brought from home into a public space like this. Yeah. But then it gets. Then the story gets much more complicated. It does. There. Is that <laughs> enough? Does. Is that enough background? I think so. Yeah. I mean, yes. I the, your point about, and I mean, the story is not taking us there exactly, but it sure gives us that detail that these religious leaders don't seem to realize that the mir- that a miracle has occurred. No, which is they a theme we keep seeing over and over again, mm-hmm. and they don't recognize this guy, which. You imagine if he's been sitting next to this pool for 38 years, if they had been really paying attention, they would know who he was. You'd think. You would think. Yes. And so there may be something in here. I mean, certainly something one could sort of tease out of here that, you know, if you pay attention to the world around you, not Mm. only might you recognize people for who they actually are, but you might actually recognize when miracles have happened. Yeah. You miss miracles because you're not paying attention to what's going on. Yeah. I, you know, the, the way that I try to read John is, you know, there's a danger here of sort of slipping into this sort of anti-Jewish polemic about, oh, they only care about works and we care about spiritual things as Christians. That's maybe in this text, certainly not far below the surface of this text. Mm-hmm. But Sabbath law, you know, circumcision, kosher law, and Sabbath law are kind of the three major markers of Jewish identity in the first century. And so this is important, mm-hmm. not just kind of like nitpicking about law, but like fundamental to identity. I don't know quite what the parallels would be for a reader try- or a listener trying to get at that from the outside, but this is not just like we have a rule and don't break the rule, but like this is who we are right? and what are you doing? Do you have any way of helping us think about that? I mean, you're right. It's such a different... Um it's such a different worldview that it's hard to to come at it through this text that is being told through a different, you know, the story that's being told through a different worldview. There's this quote um, that flies around the Jewish community a lot by this uh, famous uh, author named Achad Ha'am that is, more than the Jews have kept the Sabbath, the Sabbath has kept the Jews. Mm, yes. And so I think that sort of, underscores what you were saying, that there really is a, we have all agreed, we have agreed that we are in community together, and this is what that looks like. And so you can look at it at the ritual level and say, like, this is our our best understanding of what God wants from us. And so that's really 
important. And there there are texts in the Hebrew Bible and Exodus that 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 say that people should be killed for breaking the Sabbath. We don't have any evidence that that was ever done, but it certainly is an idea that's mm-hmm. that's floating around. But I think, I mean, I don't know what the parallel would be in the Christian world to say that like there there are some there are some things that when people people start flouting certain practices that it feels like an a existential risk yes. to yeah. the community. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's hard for me reading this text as a progressive Jew. I also am like, oh, calm down, guys. Yeah. But, and I think there is real beauty in in these traditions when they're executed well. Now, clearly, I think John is, you know, <laughs> portraying these as not being executed well yeah. intentionally. Yeah. But I don't I don't know. I think agreeing on certain structures and practices and holding them in common is a is a meaningful way to walk through life. Yeah, no, I agree. It is interesting that the the man doesn't know who healed him. And he tells the religious leaders, the man who made me well said, pick up your mat. And their response is, where is this man who's not the man who healed you, but where's the man who said, pick up the mat? Mm-hmm. So Jesus, mm-hmm. even though now it's been said, like, well, he's a miracle worker, they're, they're not interested in that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so They are really, I think you're exactly right that they are really laser focused on, they're laser focused on the thing they're laser focused on, which is you're not yeah. supposed to carry that mat. Who yeah. told you you could carry that mat? So it's like, yeah. it's comical, I think, this yeah, I think portrayal. So and they're missing the thing right in front of them. They're missing yeah. the thing right in front of them. Yeah. Now, Jesus then returns and reintroduces himself to the man after having disappeared from the story for a bit. And what he says to him is, see, you're well. And then this line, which I don't know what to do with, don't Uh sin anymore in case something worse happens to you. Yeah. How do you read read that one? (laughs) Yeah. So I see in this, sin caused your problem in the first place. And you could easily revert to that state or worse if you sin again. So, I mean, already, like, that is a very, like, problematic understanding of healing and physicality and and all of that stuff for me. And then I also had, like, just, I don't know, a lot of questions about, like, the healing theology behind it. Like, it makes it feel really sort of, like, like, I don't know. Like I thought Jesus sort of had already assumed we're all going to sin because that's what humans do. And that Jesus's role was to bring about healing in this God human connection, even in the face of the sin. But now we're talking about a physical healing and it's, it doesn't seem to have this like ongoing grace. And I don't know. It's, I, I mean, I almost don't even want to get into it because like this podcast could be four hours long and we never get to the end of the story. (laughs) Like it, it yeah. feels out of left field to me. Yeah. Now, I think that's a, a reasonable interpretation of this text. The, the reason that I hesitate about that line of thinking is because of a text we haven't read yet. I believe it's in chapter nine, which we'll read in a couple of weeks. There is a man who is born blind and that people say, who sinned that this man was born blind? And Jesus said, no, mm. nobody's sin made this man be born blind. So he seems to be breaking any sense mm-hmm. of connection between sin and mm-hmm suffering mm-hmm. or like physical suffering, like ailments, yeah, sicknesses, yeah, yeah. illnesses. Yeah. 
And so it seems awkward that in, in this chapter, that would be, he's saying, this is what, this is the mm-hmm. way it is. And then a couple of chapters later, he's going to say, this is not the way it is. Mm-hmm. But if you try to, like trying to read it a different way is not easy. The, the way that I have gotten to it is to say, the sin is the, sin is the separation from the true community of God. And this man has been living sort of, I think in this text, sort of in, in a sense of alienation. He's been near the pool, but no one helps him. Like he's been separated from community that will take care of him. Uh, the community of God is not behaving as the community of God, helping helping him be restored to wholeness. And so you need to get away from that way of being in the world and come listen to me because I'm the presence of God in the world. So if something like this happens to you in the future, you'll have what you need, right? You'll have this abundant healing that Jesus has on offer instead of this limited resource that those who live in the ways of the world have access to. I don't know. That's that's sort of where I ha- have ended up. You look a little skeptical. I just have to, th- I mean. Yeah. I feel like that pulls me back to the, my initial discomforts with expect, I don't know. With I, I just, I don't know, yeah. Bobby. I just have to think about it. There's yeah. too many. Why are we reading two different <laughs> stories? There's too I know, many right? stories. Yeah, it's a lot. There's a <laughs> lot going on. There's a lot going on. Okay. So whatever we do with that. Mm-hmm. The last little section of this text is now the Jewish leaders are upset that Jesus has, I don't, they're not clearly upset that he's healed on the Sabbath. They're upset that he's told someone to take up their mat on the Sabbath. Jesus says this curious thing, my father is still working and I am working too. Mm-hmm. And then they want to, then they double down they on wanting to like kill that. him. Yeah. Because now he's equating himself with God. Can you parse that out for us at all? I mean, so the first thing I thought of was like, there's, on the one hand, in Genesis 1, it sure seems that we are resting on the seventh day because God yeah. rests on the seventh day. And so it's not mm-hmm. crazy to say that we we rest in in imitation of God. And, and I've always understood that story to, that, that origination story for the Sabbath to be this notion, you know, sort of tying back into what you were just saying about paying better attention, that if you don't routinely pause to appreciate what already is, it is like somehow existentially unfinished. Like it has to be witnessed. The glory has to be witnessed. And it's like if you're working on a piece of art and you add to it constantly and never stand back and look at it, like it's not, you have to, like, you have to pause to to appreciate it. And God seems to do that, and so we also do that. So, okay, so there's that. And, you know, if they understand Jesus to be a human, which is a reasonable understanding that they would yeah. have, uh, you know, humans are, we, we can't just do whatever God does. We're not God. Just because yeah. God does something doesn't mean we can do it. So you can't say right. I'm breaking Sabbath law because God can do it. I mean, yeah. my God, what would happen if we all were like, oh, I'm going to do what God does? I mean, yeah. so, I mean, again, I feel like it's, it, it depends who you think Jesus is. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's right. And that, you know, that seems to be the point, I think, yeah. that they're upset yeah. because yeah. they understand what Jesus is saying about himself. 
Yeah. Which is that he is in some way or another equated with God. And they don't think that that is true. And Mm -hmm. so they are rightfully from their perspective concerned, like that's dangerous, right? As you're saying. And so from their perspective, it, it makes sense. One of the things that I had not understood really until I was researching for this podcast a little bit was in the early Jewish understanding, or at least some early Jewish understandings, so Philo and others, God doesn't continue to rest on Sabbath days. So God rested Mm -hmm. on the first seventh day, but in subsequent seventh days, God continues working. And Philo's evidence of that is like plants grow and babies are born and life happens. So clearly God can't be resting. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So when Jesus says here, I am working just as my father is working, I think that maybe is what he's saying. And so he's not exactly saying y'all shouldn't obey the Sabbath. He's saying, I shouldn't have to obey the Sabbath because I'm God and God doesn't obey the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. So y'all keep Sabbathing, but Mm -hmm. I'm going to do my work. Yeah. Yeah. So he's he's not trying to overturn Sabbath law necessarily. But he's saying Sabbath law doesn't apply to doesn't me. Doesn't apply to me. That's really, <laughs> because I'm God. Really helpful. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Surprise. Which is why they yeah. get. Which is why they get madder. Yeah. Because yeah. they understand that that's what he has said. I had never understood. I'd never really thought of that. Mm-hmm. No, I had Sabbath that's that really way. Helpful. But that makes a lot of sense of this text in a way that that I was having trouble making sense of it otherwise. Yeah, I like that a lot. Okay, Amy. We have a lot of text this time. We have that two, two stories. And the second story really is kind of two different stories. There's the healing story and then the Sabbath controversy story. <laughs> so out of all of that, are there connections you're making across the texts or something in one of these texts that you want to pull out as being particularly important to think about in our current context? You know, I'm struck by, your, by one of the ways you articulated that question, which was about are there things to, to pull out across the two mm-hmm. stories, because in some ways they feel like really different yeah. stories to me. Yeah. And I think what I'm wondering about is, I don't know, is maybe like the <laughs> the appropriate role or the necessity or lack of necessity for like compassion and empathy in in the way that we make the world a better place or like the different things that can motivate people towards change that is genuinely good, good all around. I guess I'm thinking about hesitation that I see sometimes in my community. And by my community, I really just mean like progressive folks, not necessarily Jewish folks, to make sure that the people we are working with are completely 100% aligned in mission and orientation and priorities and statements about different issues and, you know, and, 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 and. So like to, to make sure that you have like allies that are 100% allies before you agree to work mm-hmm. together towards a goal. And I'm thinking back to that first story where it seems like Jesus and the, and the guy kind of have different primary goals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but, but there's something really, you know, there's, there's a miracle that comes out of it that when they, when they both are willing to engage with each other and say, like, we can, we can move the world towards a positive end each in our own way by, by being together on this. I don't know. That's just – it's a fruitful thought to me, like, that, that opens up a mm-hmm. lot of different 
ideas for for goodness that can happen in the world and in a little more flexible ways. Yeah. I love that, Amy. And I I think my head is somewhere kind of related, which is, I mean, we've got two kind of dramatic miracle stories here. One, the saving of a boy who was about to die. The other, the healing of a man with a chronic illness, Mm -hmm. chronic disability. But the way that we're reading it together today, I really am coming to the conclusion that those big signs are not the point. Mm -hmm. Those, you know, John uses the word sign instead of miracle most often. And the question is, well, then what does this thing symbolize as something or it points to something and what does it point to? Yeah. And I'm really struck in our conversation by the degree to which so far in the gospel of John and in these two stories, the miraculous things that happen happen in weirdly subtle ways that not everyone sees that yeah. you require conversation. This guy's healed, doesn't know who healed him. Jesus has to come back and say like, hey, here I am again. And there's this whole, people are not recognizing that there's miracles. The religious leaders are focused on this mat carrying and they ask, where the where's the guy who told you to carry your mat, not where's mm-hmm. the guy who mm-hmm. healed you after 38 years? And so to me, the question is, okay, what is all that pointing to? And I'm coming to the conclusion to today anyway, that what all of that is pointing to is that God is at work in the world in ways that are miraculous, but not ways that are like dramatically miraculous, mm-hmm. which is to say, we've kind of gotten accustomed to the fact that like life is a miracle. Like the fact that there is life, like the fact that there is a world that we can live in, that there is a community that we that we have, that there are people that we are connected to, that we can have a sense of identity, that, you know, God sustains us and, and, you know, on and on. And so when we look for these dramatic signs, we miss all of that. Yeah. And it seems a little trite to say like life is a miracle, <laughs> you know, but I really kind of think that's what's happening here is yeah. the point is not these dramatic things. The point is the day-to-day sustenance of life. Mm -hmm. And if we would talk to each other and share our stories and pay attention to the people who are around, we would see that in fact, there are miraculous things happening all the time. And it may not be exactly what we wish. And certainly not everything is miraculous and terrible things do happen. But in that framework, it's the, the fact of life itself is a miracle. And Jesus has now extended like you, you live. So there is a fullness of life. Now there is a future life. Death has lost its sting. It's going to be the spoiler alert conclusion to this gospel. (laughs) And so some of these things that seem so dramatically important to us, we're miss, maybe we're just missing the bigger picture, which is there is, there is a miracle all around us. If only we have eyes and ears to pay attention. I love that, Bobby. And while you were talking, I was thinking, you know, so so what is it about the healings then? So like, why yeah. are we doing, why healings? And I think there is something about the kind of vulnerability that comes in those moments when you really do need healing or someone you love needs healing that does make you willing to see things that yeah. you would never, you wouldn't have noticed. You could have been surrounded by them and never seen them because you're- yeah. You know, you you have your plan and you're following your plan and, you know. Yeah. So maybe that's why, 
Maybe that's why so many of these things happen around healings. Yeah. Which is, you know, Jesus keeps saying, y'all need to see miracles. Yeah. And which is kind of true. And it's yeah. and you keep coming back in an important way to the like, belief is constantly needing to be renewed mm-hmm. and seeing dramatic things, seeing miracles. But it seems to be a concession to the fact that we need yeah. those things. Yeah. Rather than Jesus' own This is idea not right. About, this is not how it has to be. This is not how I would yeah. really prefer to work. <laughs> I wish, yeah, I wish yeah. you could do without the signs. But because I'm here and because you need them, mm-hmm. I will I will give you some. That's a really different way to think about healing stories. I like that, and I'm going to have to think about it a bit. Yeah, me too. Amy, it was nice having a narrative. We've, <laughs> we've mm. had some mm-hmm. kind of philosophical text, and next week— we're going to have in John 6, we're going to skip the part about the feeding of the 5,000 and we're going to focus on Jesus's interpretation of that event, which is theological and philosophical and oh, I'll have to get out my colored pencils again. <laughs> you will. Yeah. So uh, anyway, I really love talking about this text with you. I always appreciate your insights. Yeah, it was good fun today. Thanks, Bobby. Yeah. See you next time. Bye. Bye. joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We are grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois. Join us next time when we'll be discussing Jesus as the bread of life in John 6, 35-69. Until then, keep on digging.